Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 30th of April, 2014, and today we're joined on the line from Ukraine by Roman Skaskiu, who writes at RomanInUkraine.com. Roman, it's great to have you here on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's uh, it's good to have someone on the program who not only understands and knows about the Ukrainian situation, but is actually there and can speak about it from from the ground. Um, so that's uh, I think would make a f- refreshing change from a lot of the, the the speculation and things that we're hearing about from people who are usually on the other side of the planet, like myself. So uh, that's that's good in and of itself. But also, it's good to have you on because I was reading uh, DailyAnarchist.com recently and came across your article, Putin's Libertarians, and. I'll link that up in the show notes so people can go and read that. And I thought it was a very, very uh, interesting, very well put together, well sourced, and obviously uh, a document that you spend a lot of time putting together, showing a lot of the misrepresentations that are going on in the alt media right now that are trying to make uh, Putin and the Russian side of this Ukrainian crisis look like angels or saviors or (coughs) something of that sort, when uh, that is far from the truth. So let's pick up from uh, starting... First of all, a little bit about yourself and your background, and then talking about this article and what prompted you to write it. Uh, sure. Well, uh, I was born and raised in uh, New York City. Um, I sort of started becoming a libertarian, not unlike Adam Kokesh, during my last days in the military. And then I, I became a, a pretty radical libertarian and remained so. And a, a lot of the writing I've done previously for Mises.org and other websites was about uh, about the military and and reconciling that with my libertarianism, which meant to a large extent repudiating it. And uh, a couple years ago, I moved from Iowa to Ukraine. I had been visiting for a few years and thought thought there was kind of nothing in my life holding me there. And for a variety of reasons, I moved here. Uh, I write and I I develop some Bitcoin related software. So that that's been my life for the past couple years. And. Uh, yeah, so then, then all this happened. <laughs> um, first the protests and then, uh, and then the uh, invasion by Russia. And uh, I certainly understand a libertarian impulse for contrarian narratives. Um, I certainly understand that after the way the media lied about Iraq, the way they lie about the government, the way they distort American history. So I understand the impulse. But some of the coverage that Ukraine was getting from the libertarian press was just so over-the-top ridiculous that, that it was driving me crazy. For example, um, there was one claim made that, that um, the Russians – how can the Russians invade Crimea when they're already there by agreement? You know, that's ridiculous. The, the Russians were leasing a military base. You don't say that you know, America can take over all of Cuba because they're, they're leasing Guantanamo Bay. Um, similarly, just repeating the Nazi mime over and over and over, which has been the centerpiece of Kremlin propaganda for, for 70 years. The Kremlin has called Estonians, Finns, Latvians, Lithuanians, uh, Georgians, certainly Ukrainians. They've always called them Nazis every time they want to distance themselves from the Russian, from the Russian kleptocracy. So this was repeated way too much in the libertarian press, and I put together a really big article uh, showing pretty exhaustively I thought why why it's ridiculous I think a lot of libertarians are just uh, they're just part of the echo chamber and, and a lot of them have adopted a contrarian narrative and I suspect that some libertarians are uh, have close relations actually to the Kremlin the Kremlin builds ties with sort of dissidents all over the world 
Well, that that's a pretty big charge right there. I mean, do you have any any names or any any ideas of that kind of connection? Um, yeah, the, I didn't make that charge in the article itself because the evidence wasn't too strong. But like, how can you how can you argue against all evidence that the Russians are legally allowed to be in Crimea after they were surrounding and taking over military bases, after they were hijacking navy boats, after they killed two Russian soldiers? How can you say that they're not doing anything illegal? So after they killed two th- there's, Ukrainian there's been soldiers. Some, you mean? They Russian, killed two Ukrainians. Yeah, they killed two Ukrainian okay. soldiers. Yeah, the um, so the 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 extent to which it's been made leads me to believe that these these people are not just wrong. They're they're also, I, I think some of them are deliberately spreading propaganda. You can you can look into it. There's a there's some ties towards the Helsinki Human Rights. Forget whether it's group or commission. Uh, some ties between them and the Ron Paul Institute for Peace. Uh, I also know a lot of people who were involved with the Helsinki Commission. I, I met the I met them at libertarian conferences, and they seem like good people. But the extent to which the the Kremlin lines are getting repeated, and the extent to which they're ignoring very obvious Russian aggression, it, it can't be just an accident. Well, th- again, that's a that's a huge charge and perhaps a completely different tack than what I was expecting to take in this interview, and I think one that we should probably follow up on. But I, I think what I wanted to come to in this conversation yes. was was the uh, I guess the historical background of this uh, that leads into this current crisis because I think there's yeah. a lot of um, very vague understanding of Ukrainian history out there that probably feeds into what I think is probably a lot of very well-meaning libertarians who, as you say, do go for the contrarian narratives and do understand that the NATO powers generally are an aggressive force and not something to be cheered on. So they necessarily take the other side in most conflicts, and I think that's probably what's feeding into this. Let's talk about some of that Ukrainian history that feeds into what's really happening right now. Yeah, I think Russian and Ukrainian national myths are fundamentally at odds with one another. And I'll do a, a very quick review of history starting in 1241, uh, when there was a kingdom called Kiev Rus. It's probably over-idealized and over-mythologized, but in any case, it was on the territory of uh, mostly Ukraine and southern Russia, and it was obliterated by the Mongols. And there was sort of a, a very chaotic and very violent uh, stateless society that followed and it was in that chaos that Moscow rose to prominence. Now, the Ukrainian narrative is that of the, uh, they say, we're the inheritors of the legacy of this ancient kingdom, and since its destruction, we've been resisting oppression. Whether that oppression was feudalism, which foreign kings imposed on us, or whether that impression was Stalin inflicting artificial famines, enslaving you know, the whole country. That's the Ukrainian line. The Russian line is uh, this great brotherhood of, uh, of peoples who are all descendants from, you know, that, that ancient kingdom of Kiev Rus. Um, so <laughs> you can see how that's problematic because the Ukrainians don't consider, by and large, they don't consider themselves brothers. And while the Russians see that themselves as the great uniters of all these disparate peoples, the idea of a Russian people is not as ancient as most people believe. It's about as old as the idea of an American people. 
Uh, it was in the 18th century that Tsar Peter of the Grand Duchy of Muscovy decided to call his kingdom and all the people that he conquered Russians. So from the Ukrainian point of view, um, the idea of a greater Russian people, not the core, but the greater Russian people is just this expansionist, aggressive idea, while from the Russian point of view, as far as I can tell, this is a natural brotherhood whose uh, political capital is in Moscow. Well, let, let's move it into the 20th century then, because of course yes. you raised the specter of Stalin and what happened there in the 1930s. And I think that's crucial to understanding Ukrainian resentment in, in if not living memory, at least very recent memory uh, with regards to Russia. And then, of course, playing into World War II and then the Soviet uh, invasion. Right, right. So. Well, World War II, um, gosh, we could, we could do hours on this alone. Uh, it's such a big topic. Well, uh, what's relevant from that? Well, Russia will say that uh, that the communists were uh, were uh, a lot of foreigners, including Russians, and that it was an aberration contrary to the Russian idea. But they also seem to, on one hand, they say it was an aberration. On the other hand, they say that uh, uh, that that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a great tragedy and they want to restore it, at least politically. Ukrainians see the Soviet Union and World War II as just one more step of uh, Russian impression, uh, oppression, whether it was 17th and 18th century feudalism or the Soviet Union, it was just the constant pressure from Moscow over the territory of Ukraine turning Ukrainians into slaves. Yeah, uh, right. There's a lot of fuss being made over uh, over Nazis. Um, you know, I would I want to discuss this in the in the larger context of Russian propaganda. They sponsor or they they uh, they accuse Estonians of being Nazis. When the Estonians wanted to remove a statue of their Soviet quote unquote liberators, they were accused of being Nazis. Uh, by the way, those liberators deported 17% of Estonia's population, and now they can't even remove a statue without getting called Nazis. When Lithuanians want to distance themselves from their Soviet past, they get called Nazis. Uh, when, when Georgia, uh, Sh uh, Shakashvili became president, very pro-Western stance, he was called a fascist. So this accusation of Nazism uh, has been and remains a centerpiece of Kremlin propaganda. Now, there is some truth to it. Uh, if you go back, but you have to go back all the way 70 years. When the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, they had huge support, both in Ukraine and in Russia. Hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers joined the Nazi army. Now, in Russia, this legacy has been stamped out completely. But in Ukraine, where resistance to the Soviet Union lasted for an additional 10 years into the mid-50s, armed resistance, um, that legacy of, uh, of, you know, Nazis, like, or as a symbol of resistance to the Soviet Union remains. 
Well, let's let's look at a specific example of this. And I note on your uh, on your Roman in Ukraine blog, you have a recent post arguing about the commemoration of the Galician SS being called That's a right. neo-Nazi march by RT, and that relates back to a uh, RT post neo-Nazis march in Lvov in honor of Ukrainian right. and SS division and photos, and they have these yeah. photos of menacing skinheads holding these signs. Um, let's talk a little bit about that specific example and how this is uh, overplayed in terms of calling it neo-Nazi. Okay. Well, let, let me tell you why this, this conversation is frustrating, because I, I do frequently find myself assuring people that the, that the um, protests were not anti-Russian and I, or, or anti-Jewish. I point to the, the actual Russians who are fighting alongside the Ukrainians. I point to the open letter of Ukraine's Jewish community about anti-Semitism in Ukraine, or the, the interview with the head rabbi of Kiev saying there's no serious anti-Semitism in Ukraine um, and that it's much worse in Russia. So I think the fact that Ukrainians are constantly on the defensive about this issue is, is, a, is a sign of the, the success of Kremlin propaganda. It's also frustrating because throughout this, these protests and now this invasion, no Russian language books have been burned. Ukrainian books were burned by the Russian separatists in Crimea and in Kharkiv. No pro-Russian politician was tortured to death. Uh, last week, uh, a pro-Ukrainian member of parliament in the east was tortured to death. Um, there's some gruesome pictures um, emerged. They, they cut him open completely and drowned him. You know, no pro-Russian uh, protesters and demonstrators get attacked. Uh, repeatedly, pro-Ukrainian demonstrators get attacked by Russian thugs with baseball bats. And it's not like two angry groups squaring off against each other. It's usually a case that as the Ukrainian protest is breaking up, the, uh, the thugs come in and they isolate little groups of people who are trying to flee and beat the crap out of them, uh, including killing them in some instances. But so to be if fair, a pro-Russian mayor was just uh, shot in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, he switched. He switched about uh, a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, and he was pro-Russian initially, then he switched allegiances and started to support the new government. He was assassinated, and, uh, but he was a really, really dirty guy. He's been to prison three times. He was deeply involved in a lot of criminal activity, and we'll never know precisely who killed him or why. But my, the point I'm making is that all the aggression is pointedly from the Russians towards the Ukrainians. And yet here I am about to explain to you that Ukrainians are not neo-Nazis. So with that in mind, the Galatian SS division, all right, um, the Galatian SS division, much to the Kremlin's delight, is sometimes remembered as a... Its symbols are sometimes evoked. You never see the swastikas, but you'll occasionally see the the SS symbols uh, as a symbol of resistance to Moscow. All right, it formed in 1943 when it was completely clear the Nazis were going to lose the war, and it was supposed to become the core of an eventual Ukrainian army. Twenty years earlier, part of the of the defeated Austro-Hungarian army became the core of a Ukrainian army. So Ukrainians fought with the Austrians in World War I, and then a group of them became a Ukrainian army, and they were trying to repeat this. Okay, I'm not going to say that remnants of the SS division after its destruction didn't, you know, didn't participate in, in some 
in uh, you know cleansing the partisans, for example. But the SS division formed to fight the Bolsheviks. That was their only major engagement, and they were 80% destroyed. Uh, they were the only SS division allowed to have priests. That's significant because when the Bolsheviks came to Western Ukraine, what was then Poland, the first thing they did was slaughter all the priests. So, um, it's not it's not so simple like Hollywood would have you believe. You can't point your finger and say, "Look, Nazis." In the two decades prior to World War II, up to 25 percent of all Ukrainians were exterminated. So this happened in the shadow of genocide. Uh, about 13,000 Ukrainians formed an SS division. They were 70 to 80 percent killed in action in their only major engagements. And there was a small parade of several hundred people remembering them as people who fought for a free Ukraine. And that's why the whole world gets the point and say, look, Nazis, let's support the Russian invasion. It's very frustrating. But well, it, thanks for giving me the opportunity to set it straight. Well, it's very interesting to hear that that other side of it, which, of course, we do not get from the RT reporting of it. Um, so that is, I mean, again, that's extremely interesting. And uh, again, I'll, I'll refer people to that article up on RomanInUkraine.com. And again, I'll put that in the show notes so people can go and yep. read through more of the details of that. But let's, let's bring up our history lesson towards the current time then, because uh, obviously with the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, Ukraine yep. becoming an independent nation, obviously things changed dramatically. But not necessarily for the better. And of course, it didn't take long at all for the oligarchs to basically get their, their hands on the country and to sell out the Ukrainian people, which is obviously where a lot of this frustration uh, th that has been pent up for a very long time and is finally being released now is coming from. Let's talk about the, the, the post-Soviet era and basically what's, what's happened to the country since the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, you know, it was it was worse from the point of view of stability, maybe, but life got immeasurably better. I think there, there's just a lot of old people that confuse nostalgia for their youth with nostalgia for the Soviet Union. But, you know, I think I think it's been immeasurably, immeasurably better. Uh, it's been a criminal state, a mafia state where government, business and mafia are, are indistinguishable. Um, and... And uh, it was it was largely a rebellion against that. It was not a civil war. It was a a rebellion, I would say, of the Ukrainian population, which was the the majority, against the government, and from the minorities of Russians, from the minority of Jews, you had a mixture. You had some Russians and Jews fighting on Maidan alongside the Ukrainians, and then you had others who were supportive, others who were skeptical. But it was not Ukrainians against Russians. It was Ukrainians against the government. And they overthrew the regime. And it seems like the Kremlin saw that their puppet governments had been overthrown. And they're trying really hard to make it uh, seem, at least to the Russians, like it's an anti-Russian movement and a pretext for invasion, which is underway right now. Let me tell you the effectiveness of this propaganda because it's, it's really hard to believe. I, I live in the western city of, of Lviv, kind of like the, the spiritual center of this uh, reawakening, although it took place in, in Kiev. I've had personal friends, three separate personal friends with family in Russia get phone calls asking them, is it true that in Lviv, Russian speakers are beaten up in the streets? I wouldn't believe that. I wouldn't even believe this if it's uh, if it wasn't first-hand accounts. 
from three separate friends. I also know a girl who works in a hostel. She said a Russian family was staying there and barely leaving the hotel room, the hostel room, for about a week. And she eventually discovered that they thought they were going to get attacked by Ukrainian fascists. This is so ridiculous. It's just, it's like from another planet. Russian is spoken every day in Lviv. There's a, a Russian street musician who plays his guitar in the center of the city. But Kremlin propaganda seems directed mostly at the internal population of Russia. And it convinces them that they're surrounded by homosexual Nazis and that the only defense is offense. Um, Vice News had a, a lot of coverage, uh, a lot of great, like, you know, raw footage uh, of, the, of the separatists in the East. And you get to hear some of them talk and you get to hear, you get glimpses of this, of this ridiculous propaganda, which they believe. You have one of them saying he was a miner. He was a, a local of, of Eastern Ukraine. He was saying they didn't pay the miners because uh, the Ukrainian army took all the money. Um, you have others saying that, uh, a, a guy saying, I have to fight in eastern Ukraine. He was from Russia. I have to fight in eastern Ukraine because if I don't, I'll be fighting the Americans in Russia itself. Um, it, it's, it's crazy, but it's really effective. And it reminds me of an article I read about Israel, actually. I think it was written by a rabbi, though I might be mistaken, called The, the Virtue of Hate. The Virtue of Hate. And it talked about how useful it is to make all the surrounding people hate you because then you have a reason to be aggressive against them. Then it becomes easier to call them Nazis and fascists or terrorists or whatever you may be. And it, it, seems, it seems like that the virtue of hate has been, is an aspect of Kremlin propaganda. Now, I certainly get the idea of the propaganda being directed internally at the Russian population to make them believe that, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting the enemy at the doorstep and, and, uh, and they're, yes. they're surrounded on all sides. I, I get that. But at the same time, I do see the encirclement by NATO that's going on and has been going on for some time. And I do yeah. see things like Victoria Newland and, and her infamous uh, lethal yes, conversation yes. and things. I mean, there are Washington fingerprints and, and NATO fingerprints and what's going on in this and i uh, how do you how do you reconcile that with with the, the the narrative that you're you're painting here that it's only and 100% kremlin propaganda oh no i mean yeah i mean the west wants to use ukraine as a foil against russia and that's very dangerous and i've written an article in the daily beast uh that ukraine needs to stay away from nato and stay away from the eu i've written many such articles so Ukraine needs to embrace its historic role as a borderland, and it needs to become an armed society. Uh, they need to legalize gun ownership. That's that's the only way forward. But you know, of course, a lot of Ukrainians sense a savior in the West, and they keep appealing to to the West for help, as they did incidentally after World War II, as they did incidentally after World War One, and the West the West never came and actually helped, and and I don't think they ever will. Um, what what the I think the the Western involvement has been exaggerated, and I would refer you to my article Putin's Libertarians. I think what the West was doing was sponsoring dissident media in Ukraine very aggressively, and uh, and waiting for the next election. I think the overthrow of the government surprised everybody. I think it surprised Russia. I think it surprised the West, and I think it surprised the protesters. Um, what happened was not a coup. 
If it was a coup, what you would see is the Ukrainian opposition politicians sort of leading this thing and pushing this thing. But that's it's completely the opposite. The protesters were hugely skeptical of the opposition politicians, and they remain so. And the opposition politicians have been playing sort of catch-up to the protesters. It was driven from the ground up, and I think libertarians can learn a lot from the overthrow of this government. Does that answer your question? I kind of started it, rambling I, I think there. it does, but it also raises its own questions because, uh, yes, certainly, I, I can get the idea that this was uh, a grassroots movement that 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 developed and and has been piggybacked yes. on by the interests that want to steer it in one direction or another. But again, isn't that part of the lesson that libertarians should be learning from this? That the overthrow of a government doesn't necessarily bring in the type of government or the type of people yes, that you want. Yeah, you need to have something in its place. Though I would say that it's. It's completely rational for Ukrainians. Well, if the choice was getting taken over and conquered by the EU, NATO, <laughs> central bankers, the globalists, it's completely rational for Ukrainians to want that. Because if you look at the quality of life between post-Soviet countries that made it into the EU, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, versus the post-Soviet countries who remained in Russia's sphere of influence, Ukraine, Belarus, you know, it's, it's night and day. Uh, under the EU, under the globalists, you could still have your fantastic news site, the Corbett Report. In Russia, I mean, there's a, a Wikipedia page dedicated to journalists killed in Russia. So there are fates worse than, you know, you know NATO, EU, central bankers, World Bank, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, there, there are a lot worse things, and one of them is, is Russian kleptocracy. So Ukrainians want that. But what they're doing is they're making a mistake. They think that NATO would defend them, and it won't. It never has. It never will. And uh, I've been arguing very strenuously. I've been on Ukrainian television like five, six times, arguing that U Ukraine needs to be a borderland. It needs to be an armed society, and it needs to find economic liberty in its role as a borderland. That's best of all. However, second best would be the EU. Well, I, I certainly get what you're saying, but I'm not one for choosing lesser of two evils. I'm one for eradicating <laughs> the evils altogether. So let's talk about that, what, you're, what you would envision as, as that, uh, that economic borderland and how that would work. Um, what, what should this look like if this was really being steered um, towards the, the, the benefit of the Ukrainian people? Um, well... I mean, I think it's being steered towards the benefit of the Ukrainian people. I think moving from Russian kleptocracy to uh, EU standards is a huge improvement, and you can just look at Latvia for that. However, what what would I do? Um, well, first of all, there's an invasion underway. You know, journalists are being kidnapped, pro-Ukrainian protesters are being murdered, pro-Ukrainian politicians are being murdered. Um, they want, they say they want a referendum, but it, it's going to be another huge act of fraud if it does happen. So what I would do, first of all, to stem, stem the, the uh, energy of the invasion, I would say that I am all for a referendum. You know, the right to self-determination, I consider a fundamental right. But I don't think we can have a referendum until we arm the society. So I would legalize gun ownership for a year. And after that, you know, then you could, once people are armed, then you can tell who are the locals and, and who are the Russian agents and the Russian special forces. Um, have the referendum after the society is armed. So that's one thing. 
And the other thing is, you know, right out of libertarian scripture, just guns and, and free money and local autonomy. It's no, no secrets. Interestingly, the mayor of Lviv, where the city that I live in, he's been agitating very hard for local autonomy. Um, and it's kind of a, a interesting rhetorical game because the word federalism has kind of become poison in Ukraine because Russians use that as an excuse for for intervention. And you don't get federalism with, with Russia. You, you get a, a Russian annexation. And then you become part of a country in which the president appoints the governors. You become part of the country that went to war two times in Chechnya to prevent secession. Um, you go. You become a part of a country that where it's illegal to talk about secession. So they're all for federalism of their neighbors. But if any region adopts that line, as Crimea is discovering, they become part of a hyper-centralized, hyper-controlled state. How's that? That's well. I'm all on board with local autonomy. I'm all on board with uh, personal freedoms and uh, self-defense and, and all of those other good things. I, yeah, it uh, sounds like there's a but coming. I, well, I, I find the European Union and joining that as 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 anything, um, but other than uh, than anathema to be uh, a, a strange concept. Yeah, but uh, that's that's my hardcore but, libertarian but I think, principles, I, think, I suppose. I think the European Union can and will collapse peacefully. Whereas Russia, whereas Russia goes to war to prevent collapse, as is evident in Chechnya. Bring it on. It couldn't happen soon enough. All right. Uh, um, on that note, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, we've discussed a lot, but there's a lot more to discuss. So I hope people who have had their interest peaked will go to the show notes of this conversation and follow the link to RomanInUkraine.com and some of the articles that we've been talking about to find out more about yourself and the perspective you're coming from. And I think it is important that we get this perspective in the uh, in the alt media, specifically in libertarian circles, where, as you say, so much of sort of the Kremlin side of it is being represented, but not so much from the other side. So uh, so it is good to get that other perspective. Uh, Roman Skaskiw, thank you again for your time today. It's really been interesting talking to you. Uh, my pleasure. I'm a big fan of your show. Please keep up the good work. Thank you.